Now that we've done the video, let's look at Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be considering verses 15 through 20 uh, in just a couple of minutes. Uh, There was a young man who wanted to be a pastor in the early 1950s, and he looked around at a variety of different denominations. He, uh, He grew up in the home, very poor home. His father was actually in southern Indiana, a member of the Ku Klux Klan, so he grew up in in an atmosphere of of hatred, uh, an atmosphere of violence, but there was something about religion that sparked his interest, and uh, in in the Indianapolis area in the early 1950s, a a Methodist superintendent kind of took this young man under his wing and and helped him along, and he became a student pastor at a a local church, a Methodist church in the Indianapolis area, but he only stayed about three years, and he left because he was very upset and very frustrated with the lack of uh, integration in his own community and the, the hatred that people had between the races. And so he decided he could do better, and he struck out on his own. He spent uh, several more years in the Indianapolis area. He became an independent pastor, as it were, and he, uh, he would do tent revivals from time to time. He would bring in very well-known speakers of his day, uh, William uh, Branham, who was a very well-known in the 50s, very well-known Pentecostal preacher and faith healer, uh, partnered with this young pastor, and he continued to try and do more and more in the areas of, uh, of healing and of restoration. Uh, people who knew him said he just burned with a passion for people to be uh, treated equally. Uh, by the early 1970s, he had moved his ministry out to California, uh, and he began to go undergo a transformation that wasn't uh, very pretty. Uh, he began to uh, think some pretty radical thoughts. He began to, uh, even a count of some people would say, they began to hallucinate. He began to believe that he was a reincarnation of Mahatma Gandhi or perhaps even the reincarnation of uh, Buddha. And sometimes he thought he was Jesus. One of his followers said this. When he was speaking to this pastor one day, the pastor said to him, what you need to believe in is what you can see. If you see me as your friend, I'll be your friend. As you see, if you see me as your father, I'll be your father. For those of you who don't have a father, if you see me as your savior, I'll be your savior. If you see me as your God, I'll be your God. 1978, November 11th, this pastor, along with 918 of his followers, 300 of whom were children under the age of 12, committed mass suicide at Jonestown. How do you get so far afield? How do you get so lost if you start so well? You say, Tom, that's a pretty extreme example. Clearly, there was something terribly wrong with him, and I would not argue the fact that that is true. But if you look at his followers, if you look at the people who who hitched their wagon to Jim Jones, you find people who are educators. You find people who had degrees that were master's level and doctorate level degrees. You find very successful business people, lawyers and the such. People who were duped into believing a new Messiah had come and a new age had dawned. In short, people who had believed a false prophet. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Hear the word of God. Jesus teaching his disciples. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone. Be glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the the story we heard. Drew and Antoine talking about how you change people's lives. How that journey started for Drew in, in Mexico on a weekend trip, helping one family just get a roof over their head. And how it's grown now to impacting men for the gospel, uh, who are mostly the forgotten men of our community, mostly men who uh, no one really cares about all that much, men who are mostly avoided by, by nice people in our society, and yet that's where you're working. That's what your Holy Spirit is doing because you are a God of salvation. You're a God of mercy and you're a God of grace. You're also a God of truth. In you there is no lie. You're not one way today and another way tomorrow. What you've said in your word is what continues to be true to this day. So, Father, as we think and pray and and talk as individuals and as a congregation about how you're moving us forward, it is important that we understand exactly what we believe. You have warned us in this passage that there will be those who will come who will seek to destroy your church, and they will look very much like true servants of Jesus. And if we're not careful and if we're not paying attention, we too can be led astray. So Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to this passage this morning. Pray that we would take to heart what Jesus is teaching his disciples. Father, forgive me for my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to learn and to know this morning. We pray that you would come and that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. This morning we're going to spend some time talking about false prophets, or as Jesus says, wolf in sheep's clothing. I think I actually have a picture of a wolf in sheep's clothing, and I, 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 had, to, I had to look a long time for this. I want you to appreciate my work this week, but that's pretty good, isn't it? I mean, if you weren't really paying attention, that guy could, he could maybe sneak up on you and have you for, uh, for breakfast. Uh, clearly, he's already had some breakfast, and that uh, was what that sheep used to be. Uh, But Jesus says that there are those who want to come and kill and destroy and do damage to his church. So how do we go about recognizing these false prophets? Well, let's start with a sermon and a sentence this morning and make sure we understand where we're headed. Uh, Because there are false prophets that harm the church, as Jesus' disciples, we must be able to discern biblical truth. We have to be able to, to understand what kind of fruit we're looking at as a metaphor that Jesus uses in this passage so that we will have an undivided heart, uh, so that we will follow God. So what does it look like for us to be appropriately on our guard? We're not talking about paranoia. We're not talking about seeing an evil person behind every bush. We're not talking about reinstating uh, something as awful as the Inquisition. But how do we, as disciples of Jesus, understand biblical truth so that we can know and be on our guard against those who would actually come to destroy the church of Jesus. Well, we're going to talk this morning on three levels out of this passage. The first is the false prophet's identity. Uh, Then we're going to look at the fruit of the false uh, prophet, and then we're going to know what it means to be on our watch against the false prophet. So first of all, the identity. Jesus says, beware of false prophets 
who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. As you saw by the, uh, by the, the, the um, costume that the, the wolf was wearing in the picture, these folks aren't always obvious. The casual observer might actually miss the danger that he or she is in. You can't kind of have a very slight, very simplistic understanding of Scripture and expect yourself to be able to discern when you hear something that's off base. So what we need to ask ourselves this morning as we start out is, where am I in my understanding of Scripture? Where am I in being able to discern the truth uh, from a lie or the lie from a truth? Uh, how comfortable would I feel if uh, someone was, was preaching the word or a friend was talking to me about what they believed? How comfortable would I be in saying, I know that the Bible teaches that, or, you know, I don't think that's right. I think Scripture says something different than that. If we're at all concerned about our depth of biblical knowledge, which every one of us, that should be a concern for all of us. That should be something every one of us, from the pastor to the leadership, all of us, should be concerned in going deeper in spiritual truth in order that we together jointly help protect one another and protect the Lord Jesus. So what are some things perhaps that we could be on our guard for if we want to be a little bit more than a casual observer? Well, the first observation would be that we're, we're looking for someone who is bent on filling their own hunger. Jesus uses the term ravenous, wolves. So if you're ravenous, you're hungry. You're not just like, you know, you had a nice lunch, but now you're getting ready to have dinner. It's like I missed breakfast, I missed lunch, and now it's 9 o'clock at night and I haven't eaten anything all day. You kind of open the refrigerator and you just have at it, whatever happens to be there. Why? Because you're ravenous. You're starved. You can't wait to get to the next meal. And the notion here is that these false prophets are hungry, but they're hungry for what? What are they trying to consume? Well, what they're trying to do is they're trying to make it all about them. When, when you're hungry, when you've got to have something to eat, you're not really concerned about the other problems that other people have. You're not really looking at the world around you going, gee, I wonder what issues need my attention. I wonder where I need to be focused. Right now, you simply are making it about you, and you have to get something to satisfy that desire. The ravenous wolves that's bent on destroying the church has a focus that makes it all about them. They tend to be leaders who want to control the money. They want to control their fellow leaders. They're typically people that are accused of, if someone's brave enough to step forward, say they're usually accused of some kind of abuse, maybe just verbal, maybe simply being heavy-handed, maybe just wanting to always have it their way. But the false prophet is the one who has no interest in feeding the church of Jesus Christ. Rather, they simply want to feed themselves, but they use enough of the right lingo and the right language, they sprinkle enough truth in the message so that they're not necessarily easy to spot. There also tend to be people who are above correction. When confronted by a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ about a particular area of their lives, they, they brush it off. They tend to become very defensive in order that their hunger, their self-identity may be filled in what they can get and not what they can give. Because ultimately, the other observation here is that they have destructive intentions. They hate Jesus and his church. At the end of the day, they want to be the Messiah. 
I was reading about Joseph Smith earlier, the founder of the Mormon, the cult that is Mormonism. And one of the authors that was reading about, writing about Joseph Smith said this, his followers regarded him as great as Moses or Elijah. His followers regarded him as as great as Moses or Elijah. Now, I just have to ask one question when I read that sentence. Where on earth did they get that notion? Where on earth did that thought become a reality in their lives? Somewhere along the line, somebody had to say to Joe, Joe, you know what? Gosh, you, you're an awful lot like Moses. You're as great a leader as Elijah. And at that moment, Joseph Smith didn't say, God forbid that you would ever compare me to somebody like that. I'm simply a servant of Christ. Instead, he said, you got a point there. <laughs> I think you might be on to something. I am pretty impressive. Now, I wouldn't necessarily have put it in those words, but the desire of the false prophet, the identity of the false prophet is wrapped up in the, in the, in the sum and substance of wanting to be the Messiah, wanting to make it all about them, being above correction, being above reproach, and being in control. That's the identity. That's the ravenous wolf that wants to ultimately destroy the church of Jesus Christ and make it all about them. Well, what is their fruit? What's the fruit of the false prophet? And we'll look here at verses 16 through 18. And Jesus says, you will recognize them by their fruits, by what they produce in their lives. And thus Jesus, following the metaphor, uh, asks a question, are grapes gather from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Obviously, the answer is no. Well, therefore, that being the case, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. In other words, disciple of, of Jesus, if you look close enough, if you pay attention enough, you'll be able to discern what you're hearing, what you're experiencing, and whether or not this potential leader, so-called leader, is actually a disciple of mine or rather a false prophet who's coming to destroy. So what is bad fruit? Let's start there for just a minute. Let me give you, and I'm going to give you just three examples of bad fruit. We could give you a whole lot more, but let's just give you three obvious ones. The first thing that you always want to ask someone who claims to be a leader in the church of Jesus Christ is, what do you think about the authority of Scripture? What do you think about this book? Is it just kind of a, a guide that you can follow from time to time? Does it contain some nice principles that you ought to consider every once in a while? Or is it the truth of God? Is it actually what it claims to be, which is God-breathed? And I take you to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and Paul is talking to a young pastor. He's giving him some warning. He's giving him some advice, and he reminds him that he is to submit himself to the authority of Scripture, and he is to teach only what Scripture teaches. All Scripture is breathed out by God, exhaled by God. It is spoken out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It is only the Word of God that is authoritative. It is not the pastor. It is not the elder that is authoritative. The Word of God is authoritative. And as long as we line ourselves up with the Word of God, we'll be okay. So one of the first questions we want to ask is, where do we stand on the authority of Scripture? The false prophet 
will like some things about the Bible. They will use some things in the Bible to what? To promote their agenda. The second warning that we ought to consider is when we see someone who de-emphasizes Jesus, both the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. We have someone who, who, who doesn't hold Jesus as Savior and Lord, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I'm going to take you to Colossians, and I've, I've shortened this text down quite a bit. The book of Colossians is about the glory of Jesus. It's about the supremacy of Jesus. It's about how Jesus is so much greater than any other, that he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So I've shortened this text down, but I've, I think I've hit the key points. Speaking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. By Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus, all things hold together. Jesus is the head of the church. In everything, Jesus is preeminent. In Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells. And what did Jesus do? He made peace by his blood on the cross. Jesus is both Savior and Lord. If you're looking for that kind of fruit in a person's life, you simply ask them, who is Jesus? And we'll come back to that in just a couple of minutes. Because it's important that we understand that the Scriptures teach very clearly that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. He was before everything. He is the creator of all things. All things hold together by his authority. And he is head of the church, but he is also Savior. It is the work that Jesus did on the cross and only the work that Jesus did on the cross that allows God to offer salvation to you and to me. Bad fruit goes in a very different direction. So Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus is one of the ways to heaven. Jesus is, is someone that, that was a prophet, that spoke with great authority. But, we, but the false teacher stays away from terms like Savior, Lord, King. Because of that, they end up not being consumed with Jesus, not having the Lord Jesus be the passion of their lives and wanting to bring glory and honor to him, but rather they become consumed with themselves. Look at what Peter says in his second epistle. There will be false teachers among you. He's simply quoting what the Lord's already told him. They will bring destructive heresies. Many will follow their sensuality, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false works. Notice how they're consumed with, their, with themselves. Many will follow their sensuality. The notion of sensuality is that the body is the primary focus whether it be a, a, a physical appetite for food or a sexual appetite, that the, the, the notion is that I am at the center of the world and whatever needs I have, whatever desires I have, whatever longings I have, need to be fulfilled. They also are those who are greedy. Again, they're consumed with what they can get. So what do they do? They exploit. They use. They use others to get what they want. Now, again, it's salt and peppered with a lot of things that look like truth. You, the quote that I, that I read earlier about, um, about Joseph Smith, his followers regarded him as as great as Moses or Elijah. How did Joseph Smith earn any followers? I, I don't have followers. I should never have anyone as a follower looking to me as the one who's going to save. I am simply a messenger. And if somebody says, Tom, I'm going to follow you, the very first thing I should say is, don't you dare. I'm not the Messiah. There's only one Lord. The one you, that you need to follow is the Lord 
Jesus. I was reading earlier this week, I kind of did a study of, of all the skeletons in the, in the quote-unquote Christian closet, I guess, and I, I was reading up again on Jimmy Swagger, who's a Pentecostal pastor. I just want to read for you a little, a little clip on this with the, the notion of being consumed with, uh, with themselves, making it all about them. In 88, Swagger was implicated in a sex scandal involving a prostitute that resulted in his suspension and ultimately his defrocking by the assemblies of God. Good for the assemblies of God. <laughs> the assemblies of God said, we are reading scripture. We're reading what God says about, about his servants, about those who are teachers. And this man falls outside of those parameters. So we're going to call it like we see it. We're going to follow scripture. Good for them. Three years later, Swagger was implicated in another scandal involving a prostitute. As a result... Swaggart's ministry became non-affiliated, non-denominational, and significantly smaller than it was in the ministry's pre-scandal years. How on earth does this man still have a ministry? How on earth does somebody like this be able to, to falsely preach the word of God? The, 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 church, the assemblies of God did exactly the right thing, and yet there were still people who are willing to follow someone who makes it all about themselves. That's the fruit of the false prophet. Their identity is that they're ravenous wolves, and their fruit is that they reject Scripture, they de-emphasize Jesus, and they're consumed with themselves. So how do we stay on watch? How do we simply be aware of this? Again, I don't want to create paranoia. We're not trying to strike fear into everyone's heart this morning. God's been very gracious, I believe, to Green Tree. I think the, the, the elders of this church stand on the authority of, of Scripture. But we must always be on watch. How do we do that then? Well, the first one I want to suggest comes out of uh, verse 18. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And then skipping down to verse 20, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus says that twice in this passage. So the first thing is, learn to recognize good fruit. Let me take you back to 2 Timothy, a couple of verses before uh, Paul mentions the scriptures being breathed out by God. And he says to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Every parent in this congregation, and I'm a parent in this congregation, I include myself in the statement, should memorize those verses and commit them to practice every day of our lives with our children, even with our adult children. We are to pass on the goodness of Jesus to the next generation. But Paul is pointing out to Timothy that he's been around the, the scriptures a long time, that he's learned these things from his childhood. One of the ways we learn to recognize good fruit is, uh, or bad fruit is simply by knowing what good fruit looks like, by, by being so dug in deeply into the word of God that when you hear something that isn't quite right, you kind of sit up a little bit. You know, wait, that, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm buying that one. Run that one by me again. What did he just say? What did she just say? No, that, that doesn't line up with Scripture. How do you know that? Because I study the Word of God. We've said this before, but how do guys in the Treasury Department, guys and gals who are Treasury agents, how do they learn about counterfeit money, right? They don't look at counterfeit money all day. What do they do? They look at good bills all the time, thousands of good bills, and then the instructor will slip in a bad one. 
and they're going through, and they're maybe on bill, you know, 2,649, and all of a sudden they go, whoa, wait a minute, back that up. There's something wrong with that one. Why? Because they've seen what the right one looks like. Do I know the Word of God to the degree that when, when something is off, I actually hear it? It actually makes me stop, whether I'm reading somebody's blog or whether I'm listening to somebody preach a sermon or, or whether I'm listening to maybe a, a sermon on the radio? Do I know the Word of God in a way that allows me to recognize good fruit, which perks my ear to hear the bad when it comes out? Well, again, I'm going to repeat just a minute, but if we're going to watch for false prophets, learning to recognize fruit means we're going to ask a couple of questions. One is, we're going to ask, what do you do with Jesus? It comes back to this so often. And I'm going to take you to John chapter 1. Speaking about Jesus, the word used for Jesus in this passage is actually word, the capital W. In the beginning, Jesus, the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And then the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. In two verses right there, we learn what it means to understand the identity of Jesus, that Jesus is God and that he became God in the flesh and he continues as God and he is full of grace and truth. That means that he is full of grace, he will save us. If we put our faith in him and he's full of truth, he won't ever lie to us or take us down the wrong pathway. He will always be true to who he says he is. If you want to know if a teaching is, is a cult-type teaching, not occult, not worship of Satan, but C-U-L-T, if you, if you think that somebody who's knocked on your door and wants to talk to you about what they believe, if you think maybe something doesn't sound right, ask this question. What do you do with Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? If is it a cult, it will either add something to the identity of Jesus or it will take something away from the identity of Jesus. If you study Mormonism long enough and carefully enough, you will learn that they take away from Jesus. Yes, Jesus is God, but no different than the God you can become if you learn to be as faithful as he was. Jesus was not preexistent before in the form of God. He became a God, and you can become a God too. Now, you're going to have to look for a little while to find it, but if you look, you'll see it's there. If you ask the question, what do you do with Jesus, and you press in on it, you'll recognize bad fruit when you hear it. Likewise, a similar question to ask is, what do you do with salvation? What does salvation look like? What does the scripture say about salvation? Well, I've shortened down another verse, Galatians 2, 16, where Paul says this, a person is not justified. Justified is a legal term. Probably a lot of you know that. It, it means that you're, you're free from guilt, okay? And in this case, it's spiritual. It's between how does a, how does a man or a woman become free from guilt in the eyes of God. That's, that's the term justified. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. There should be a period right there. That's it. Through faith in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be saved? Does it mean that, that God does half and I do half and we meet in the middle and, and then we're good to go? No, it doesn't. In a recent survey that was taken among biblically confessing evangelicals, people who said, I believe that Scripture is authoritative, I, I, I live my life under the authority of Scripture, said this, 56% of evangelicals believe this statement. People must contribute their own efforts for personal salvation. People must contribute their own efforts for personal salvation. 
person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. That's how the wolf gets in the sheep pen, brothers and sisters. It's when we don't know enough about what we ought to know in order to be on our guard to look out for one another. Look out for all those children who are in classrooms this morning, trusting that we put the right people in those classrooms to teach them the Word of God. The responsibility that we have is an eternal responsibility. We cannot afford to be lazy or negligent in this area of our lives, individually as disciples of Jesus and collectively as the church. What's at stake? Well, we know that there's downfall for those who are false prophets in sheep's clothing. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, in verse 19, is cut down and thrown into the fire. But in the meantime, great harm can come to the church of Jesus Christ if we are not understanding our responsibility to discern and know biblical truth in order to protect one another and this little spiritual family called Green Tree Community Church. So how do we respond? You know, this is kind of the so what part of the sermon. And typically this would be the place where I would give you a couple of talking points uh, in my perspective on this. But I was having a conversation with a friend of mine earlier this week. And he, we weren't even really talking about this passage. And he was sharing with me an experience he had recently. And I, it was, I was so impressed with what he said and how it fit into this text that I've asked him to come and share that with you. So I'm not going to do the wrap-up this morning. I'm going to ask Tom Warner, who's one of our elders at Green Tree, to come and share with you for three or four minutes and talk to you about what is at stake here and why this is so important for us to guard carefully biblical truth. Thomas? So good morning. I am Tom Warner. I'm one of the elders here at Green Tree. And I do want to talk with you about an experience we had Last year, fall of 2013, my wife Susan and I went to Europe. And while we were there, we visited some famous cathedrals. And of course, what we were doing as a church at Green Tree was on my mind as we visited those cathedrals. We were planning to start the MOVE campaign. And when we came back, I spoke with some of you about the people who built those cathedrals. I told you that they inspired me, that they, those people worked knowing that they would never worship in the completed cathedral because these places took many years, sometimes centuries, to complete. And yet people gave and worked sacrificially, knowing that they were building places of worship for their communities and for their children and their grandchildren. And that inspired me. So two months ago in September... Susan and I were back in France, and we added Spain to the list, and again, we looked at some well-known cathedrals. And This time, I was struck by something else, which to me was disturbing. I would say that many of the cathedrals that we visited and that we see in Europe could now be characterized better as museums than as places of worship. So first, many of the cathedrals charge admission much like a museum would, instead of being open to people who want to come and worship. Some of the historic smaller churches are just closed. And third, the conversation of those places is usually on the wrong topic. 
By that, I mean that the emphasis is on the rose windows and on the flying buttresses. Now, don't get me wrong. I love a rose window. I love flying buttresses. I really do. I genuinely love those places. But as I went through those places, nowhere did I really see the central message of Christianity laid out for people. Nowhere did I hear, here is the good news. This is the message that has satisfied Christians for the last 2,000 years. Notre Dame alone has 13 million visitors each year. But nowhere that I could see do these people hear of the grace of God in a way that is living and vital. And so we would go to these places in like Barcelona and Paris, and I'd walk out. I'd love the places, but I could see what was missing. And I'd grumble, grumble, grumble to my wife, and we'd walk around the street. She'd say, Tom, you have been here before. Why is this surprising to you? And it's because I think, first, the mission has somehow been lost or diluted. If those people who built those cathedrals came, I think they'd be distressed. And then secondly, it reflects where we, where we are in our own building. So there it is. The walls are going up. There's no flying buttress. Well, I don't know. So let me tell you first that I have no second thoughts about building a building. I think we need to build a building. But I, I want to ask, what is it that we are building? Susan and I have put our money where our mouths are, and I'm glad. Many of you have given very sacrificially. And yet the question nagged at me, what would we observe if we came back to Green Tree in another 50 years or another 100 years? What is it that we would find? Would we, would we be happy? Would we be disappointed? I have to tell you that I think it's hard to be a disciple for the long haul. Um, through ups and downs of life, through the competing messages we hear in the world, and through generations. So again, what are we building? Of course, we're building a worship facility, but I'd like us to be building much more. I'd like us to build a group of people for whom Jesus is Savior and Lord and Teacher, a group of people who love truth, a group of people who are not taken in by false messages. I'd like to see us build a group of people who want to live by the Beatitudes, who want to love their enemies, who want to store up treasure in heaven, all the things that we've been reading about in the Sermon on the Mount. I'd like to see us build a group of people who really want to see godly fruit in their community and for their children and for their grandchildren. And if we could build those things, the building would take care of itself, wouldn't it? I'm going to pray for us for just a minute, pray for ourselves, and pray for our children and our grandchildren who will follow after us. So let's pray together, please. Lord, first we acknowledge that it is hard to be a disciple for the long haul. Through ups and downs of life, through the messages that we hear in the world that don't line up with the teaching of Jesus, through generations. And so, Lord, I would pray for ourselves that you would be our teacher, that we would be people who have a passion for the truth and who want to live by the Sermon on the Mount, to live by the Beatitudes, to love our enemies, to store up treasure in heaven and all the rest. And then I pray for our children 
and our grandchildren and the generations to follow, that you would please draw them to yourself. I pray, Lord, for wonderful fruit from this body of believers and through this congregation. And we pray in your name. Amen. Will you stand with us, please?